Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to you live on tape from New York City. We don't normally do a lot of newsy stuff on this podcast, but maybe that'll change because I just did a cool interview with Alex Blumberg and Matt Lieber, who, as you probably know, are the co-founders of Gimlet Media, which, as you probably know, just sold itself to Spotify. As they note in this interview, they did not get a lot of rest recently, so I'm very appreciative of them giving me some of their time. After that, we have a well-rested Alan Murray who runs Fortune, which has also been sold recently. This is to a billionaire you probably have never heard of. We discuss what that future is like as well. Did you get some sleep? No. I'm talking to Alex Bloomberg and Matt Lieber, who were up all night because they just sold their company to Spotify. Thanks for making a few minutes for me, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. Thanks a lot. Here's my first question. On Friday, I wrote that you guys were going to sell the company few other folks did as well. What was it like between Friday and I guess it's Wednesday now? What? How was your last few days? Walk us through what happened. Well, they were a little bit more tense be- because of what you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be true, though, because I've, I've been on the other side of this. The deal was that far done. I mean, this is... I don't know. You tell me why it's more tense. You tell me why it's why that's the case. Well, I, I've never been through any kind of deal like this before. And so to me, I'm, it just feels like, well, at any at any moment, like there's always the, the possibility that like something could happen and it could fall apart. And so there, that's always in the back of your mind, you know? And so it's just like- Because the deal was literally not done. It hadn't been inked. No. So you're, you're talking to us on, what, what is this Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday. You're talking to us on Wednesday. Um, we were up until 4 a.m. I think we signed the deal at 3.30 a.m. Um, you you broke the story on Friday, so good job. I don't, uh, that, the plan was not for the story to come out. We, yeah. we didn't leak the story. I, I don't know who did. Yeah. But uh, as soon as it was out in the public, it just <laughs> created more possibility for more people to do unexpected things. Yeah. And I think of when you're in a, trying to work on an agreement of this size, there, our weekend was basically, it was like a double helix of a to-do list that was intertwining in itself across multiple dimensions. And we were just trying to check boxes off the list. Yeah. And then around every corner, there were little gremlins that would pop out to try to get in our way. Including a gremlin this very morning, which I didn't even tell you about, which I think I can share, which is that, so we were up we, we like finally got the deal signed in the like whatever three thirty in the morning last night, and then we we stumbled home, and then Spotify was going to announce this morning, and so we wanted to send um, th- the note to our all staff saying like, hey, this happened, and we're going to have an all staff today to talk about it, and uh, and we wanted to time it with the with the announcement on that uh, Daniel Eck was making, so I was I had to get up at six to send this all staff. Yes, And I copied it out of the Google Doc that it was in. And I think Google added this feature where if you copy something out of a Google Doc and you paste it into Google Mail, all of a sudden it's like the people don't have the proper uh, permissions to receive this email because it's it somehow all of a sudden treated it as like a Google Doc. And so I was trying to send this all staff and like Google had somehow <laughs> changed this feature. And I was like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> send an email. It was it was maddening. I was like panicking. And I was like, am I going to have to type this whole thing over? It was just this, it was like the last of like <laughs> these little, and there's like a, a million niggling details like that where every single thing, even the things that seem like they should be easy, like sending, cutting and pasting something into an email is hard. Uh, 
Yeah. You got, did you get the email out? I did. Good. Um, I am curious about how you talk to the staff, right? Because I'm assuming since I heard about it, uh, other folks in the company had heard about it uh, prior to me writing about it. Obviously, once it was out in the press, then you've got 100 plus employees. How do you talk to them between Friday and Wednesday when they all very rightfully want to know what is going on with the company? Will I have a job? Am I going to make a bunch of money? A bunch of questions like that. Yeah, we, um, there was a lot of sort of rumors floating around for the last week and a half. And so our employees were asking about it. And um, we sent out an email late Friday night saying, hey, we saw the news um, just like you did. There's not much we can share right now. We hope to be able to tell you more next week. And throughout last week, we had also told people, you know, told, um, we communicated through the groups of managers at the company that like, hey, this is happening right now. We are in conversations with Spotify, but we don't have it done yet. And it's really important that for the integrity of the process and the um, what we're trying to achieve here, we needed to stay inside the company. We did tell them that, you know, based on what we were talking about, this would be a great thing for the company because really what everyone here is motivated by is making amazing shows for listeners who crave more. And partnering with Spotify, sorry, I I always hate when people say partnering when what they mean by is being acquired. Um, (laughs) Being acquired by Spotify. Thank you. (laughs) Gives us, um, puts us with the world's largest audio platform that's reaching more than 200 million people globally. So it's just a way for our storytelling and our work to have a lot more impact. So generally, people are just really excited about it. And we also told them that the entire staff is coming over. Um, and so, you know, everyone is... But you weren't able to tell them that until until Wednesday, right? Uh, no, we began telling them that in small groups last week because, you know, we, we're a pretty transparent place. That's kind of, that's that's who we are. It's how we started the company, making this podcast startup that told the whole story of starting the company. So we've always been pretty open. And this is one of those situations where we couldn't be open about everything and every detail, but we tried to generally be, you know, honest and, and share with our employees what we could. So you can remove some of the fear. You're all going to have jobs. You can't tell them what's going to happen in part because you still literally don't know, I, I would imagine. But you can say, this is going to be a good outcome if it happens. You're all going to continue to work for us. And that relieves some of the pressure, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to you in May, uh, mm-hmm. and you guys seemed pretty confident, but you were also saying, look, you know, we've been running this company for four years. It's hard. It's always hard. Uh, I was looking at the transcript, Matt. You said, quote, it feels like everything is about to break. You were just sort of describing startup life in general. And Alex, you talked about a bunch of really large audio platforms that were standing around the edge of the pool of podcasting. So were you guys talking to Spotify as far back as May? When did that conversation start? I mean, we, we've been talking to Spotify almost since the beginning of the company. Um, and of course, they're, they've been one of our most important partners. I mean, Spotify really started getting into podcasts, I think, around two years ago. And they've had a really fast mm-hmm. rise. So they went from you know roughly 0% of market share two years ago to now approaching 20% of market share. And they're our second biggest partner. And, and they're our fastest growing partner, and we believe they're the future. And so, we, and we've done partnerships with them. Uh, we do a show called Mogul, which is um, a show, uh, it's a documentary series about hip hop history that we did in partnership with Spotify, and we'll be coming back for future seasons later this year. And so we knew them well, and we saw the growth on the platform. And so for us at this time, we looked at, we like our basic idea, the thing that motivates us is that we're at the second golden age of, with the dawn of the second golden age of audio. And there's just this explosion, this flourishing of new kinds of storytelling, new kinds of programming that's made possible by on-demand audio. And that's growing quite fast, just globally, and it's growing really fast on Spotify, but the actual size of the industry is still very small. It's, you know, podcasts are probably half a billion dollar industry this year. And there's basically a disconnect between the number of people who are listening and the amount of shows they're listening to and the amount of money coming into podcasting. And so the re- one of the reasons this is the right time for us is we feel like for this golden age of audio to f- truly begin to flourish, there needs to be 
global scale, there needs to be better discovery, and there needs to be better monetization. And Spotify has all those things. All that makes sense, and I understand why Spotify would want to buy you guys and why you think that's a good home. On the other hand, you're VC-backed. Um, one of the arguments the VCs and their founders always have is, should we sell or should we try to grow even bigger? Eventually, we'll have an even bigger exit. What were those discussions like? Did Spotify come to you and say, we want to buy you? Did you go to them and say, would you like to buy us? And, and what were your investors saying along this process? We had those conversations. Um, you know, Spotify came to us early in December and said, hey, we have a great partnership going. Let's talk about bringing it to the next level. And we liked that idea because for us, when we we weren't we weren't trying to sell the company, we weren't running a process. We never hired a banker. The company was going really well, but we began to think about well, what would be the things that we would need to see from an acquirer? And it was basically three things. One is they'd have to help us accelerate our mission to use this medium of audio to create more human connection um, in the world. Two, they would have to understand what's special about Gimlet, which is that we are really invested in high quality, excellent content that strives for more. And three is the value would have to be right. And all those things just work pretty, very clearly evident with Spotify pretty early on, and so we entered serious discussions. It's true, Gimlet Media is VC-backed. We'd raised 27-some-odd million dollars over the last five years. There was a path where we would be an independent company, where we would get, you know, we would get large enough and profitable enough that we could... Um, you know, navigate the stormy seas of media and maybe eventually go public or, you know, flow so much cash that we could pay out distributions to investors. But increasingly, as we looked at the landscape, it, that became less and less appealing and frankly, like less and less realistic. And so for us, we looked at the path of being independent. And like I said, things were going well for us, but we also know that there's risk down that path. And then we looked at the path of joining a large platform with global distribution and you know multiple billion dollars of revenue and data and discovery and amazing technology platform that was invested in audio. And for us, that felt like a better path where we could realize our ambitions and our goals and also make money back for our investors and provide a healthy return. And, and to me, it's just sort of like, it's like, it's the it's the basic thing. If you look at these two entities, like, you know, this, the enormous entity of Spotify and then and then us, you know, sort of like our, our independent, you know, growing but still relatively small, certainly to Spotify, uh, empire of Gimlet Media. And you imagine sort of like how those two things go separately. And then you imagine what they could be together and the the joining of them makes them greater than the sum of their parts. And that's just how it felt. It felt like, well, if you put these two things together um, with the distribution, with the data, with the expertise in storytelling, and you like sort of put all that stuff together, like what we could make together is, is far outweighs what we could make separately. That started to feel very compelling. So you guys started Gimlet Media with this podcast series, Startup, where you, Alex, are talking about founding it, and it's, it's, it's astoundingly sort of candid and interesting and compelling. So with that in mind, here's my question for you. How, how much did the fact that you guys, who worked really hard for four years, were going to see personally a return, how much, of that, how much did that influence your decision in December to go, yeah, I think we're ready to sell the company and, and actually see profit for ourselves? I can... I mean, obviously, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, like, the money doesn't matter. Because obviously the money matters. Um, I don't think you you start a company and just be like, I don't care at all if I will eventually get rich from this company. But I can also honestly say that the money was far and away not the driving factor. To me, the driving factor was, will this be better for the work we're trying to do, and will this be better for the employees that have trusted us to come come to the company? And then in the back of that, there is this like, and if we don't do this, <laughs> there is that fear of like, it could all go up in smoke and like all the work will be for naught. Like that is always, I'm not going to lie, that's always at the back of your mind. Like worst case scenario, we'll spend seven years or eight years or 10 years and then we'll have nothing to show for it. I never got that completely out of the back of my mind, but it was a very, very small part of the total equation for, for me. Thank you for your candor. I appreciate it. Uh, one other money question. Um, someone was asking this on Twitter. You guys did a Kickstarter earlier in your career? Uh, we did. Uh, we did not do a Kickstarter. We did a we did a couple of rounds of crowdfunding where listeners of Startup were able to put money into the seed round and then the Series A. That's been fun. 
to write back to so those there you guys. Go. Don't 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 trust Twitter. So if you yeah. if you put money into the seed fund uh, through crowdfunding, will you see a return on that money? Yes, you will. As where we got to close the deal, which is two weeks away. <laughs> it's a technicality that people often uh-huh. forget about. But yes, if you put money uh, in that special purpose vehicle, you're going to get paid back and you're going to make a handsome return. And so I we got to send out an email this morning to. I think about 80 people who had put in between $1,000 and $10,000 low those four years ago. And it is, it is really special and satisfying to be able to tell them that. And it's, it's exciting. their responses that we've gotten Can today. Can you tell them how much they're going to make? We haven't been able to tell them that yet because um, we, we just weren't able to, but the emails that they've gotten that they've sent back are like so like heartwarming and soulful because they felt like they were part of something that actually made a positive impact on the world and they felt so i don't know happy about that mm-hmm. it's really What's the word? I'm sorry. I'm on. I'm on two hours of sleep, so I'm not doing great right now. What's my word? I don't know. I was going to say it sounds very cool. But, <laughs> it's uh, cool. It's cool. For you. Yeah. Um, it's cool. I want to. I want to leave it there on an up note. But I did. I did have one. One last business question for you. Exclusives. Um, what's your sense of, of what happens to to Gimlet content? Um, I was going to say going forward. Yeah. We, um, Spotify clearly wants to own some of this stuff for itself. Um, but on the other hand, I think the way podcasting generally works is it works better if there's a big audience. So how are you and Spotify going to figure out what's a Spotify exclusive, what's going to be distributed widely? Yeah, I mean, well, Sp- Spotify said themselves this morning on the earning call that like they have no intention of taking the shows that the, the shows that are out there that Gimlet produces and, and putting them behind the paywall. So those will continue to be freely distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or, or, or make them exclusive to Spotify, make the them, existing yeah. shows. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so the existing shows will not be made exclusive to, to Spotify. Um, they will continue. You'll continue to get them where you get them now. And yeah, going forward, I think it's going to be a mix. Like there's, there's, this is a new world, and we're trying to figure out how it works. And so it'll be a mix of exclusive things that we make exclusively for Spotify, like we're doing right now with Mogul, or things that are windowed, or things that are a mix of the of the two. I think there's just going to be a lot of experimentation. And, and will this be a reply all episode? I'm assuming. I'm sorry, a startup episode. Can't comment on that right now, but hope so. Oh, it's got to be. It's going to be great. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it is. Um, I will let you guys get. <laughs> if it started. is, I, I will say is, Alex has been recording. I have these been recording all week, things. including through the night. So <laughs> I hope. I sure hope. <laughs> and I and I might hit you up for like uh, to to use parts of this possibly at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah. It's free content. It's all yours. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, Thanks, Peter. That's Alex Bloomberg and Matt Lieber, who needs some sleep. And we're going to take a quick break ourselves, and then we're back with Alan Murray from Fortune. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here with Alan Murray. Hi, Alan. Hey, Peter. Delighted to be here. Thanks for coming. Uh, You've had many titles in the past. What's your current title now? My current title is President and CEO of the Fortune Media Group. So I think of you as the guy who runs Fortune Magazine. Do we call it a magazine still? Uh, well, some people do. I prefer to call it Fortune Media Group. I mean, if you look at our business today, the magazine is less than half of it on a revenue basis. We have a big digital business that reaches 20 million people a month, and we have a fast growing events business. We will talk about all of that. Normally when people come in here, they either talk about their plans to put up a paywall, um, maybe they're, they're explaining what went wrong with their business, or they're talking about plans to sell their business to a billionaire. You've yeah, done at least done, two of those, We can talk right? about all of those, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to butcher this person's name. You, you were you, the magazine. Chat Giaravanan. And we call him Chet? Uh, Chat. Chat internally. I call him Chat. Some Chet. people call him CJ. Okay. Uh, if or you can call him Chachaval Giaravanan if he, you'd like. He bought your magazine, your storied brand, uh, late last year. Yeah. Did we disclose a price? I think we disclosed the price. It was $150 million. Perfect. You know exactly what it was. Uh, and this is part of the, the sale of titles that Meredith Magazine Publishing Company acquired for when they bought Time, Inc. Um, yeah. At the beginning of last year, there was a lot of uh, questions about what would happen to 
Time, Fortune, yeah. Sports Illustrated, in part because the Koch brothers um, had helped finance the the acquisition, and in part well, because— Is this we, going to a question? Because you got a lot in that I statement. got a lot in, and in part because <laughs> we were just trying to figure out— uh, Meredith and Time were trying to get together for a long time, and the thought was always what would happen to those titles if those two public, if those two companies got together, and now we know they they are being sold off, have been mostly sold off. Yeah, so look, uh, uh, Time, Inc. was uh, around for— what, 90 years? I mean, it's a great company started by Henry Luce. I was the last chief content officer of Time, Inc., which was a a fancy modern digital phrase for editor-in-chief. It was uh, sad to see it end. I think Meredith, when it bought Time, Inc., was always primarily interested in the women's titles, which would be Southern Living, In Style, but also People is a largely right. female subscribership, had less interest in the news titles like uh, Time and Fortune or the Sports Illustrated, more male titles like uh, Sports Illustrated. So it was no big surprise when they announced they were going to sell them off. I think what is a surprise, it was a pleasant surprise to me, was this interest that all of them generated from high net worth individuals who thought owning a media property is a good thing to do in the world. And I agree with them. So you were you were both running the business and then sort of in charge of selling the business at the same time. I was in charge of the editorial right. side of the business. And they, you know, all my colleagues in the Time Inc. C suite were basically let go at the time of the sale. They asked me to to stick around. Let go with really generous. Very generous packages, but yeah, go on. Yes, well, they were they were pretty generous. Most of it's public uh, information. Yeah. So uh, they asked me to stick around both to help sell the orphans, as I call them, but also because they wanted me to consider moving on with Fortune as the CEO. So they packaged us. They put us out as a package deal, me and Fortune. So people who listen to this podcast don't need to know, know full well why print magazines uh, are declining, why their value has been falling for years and years and years. Forbes magazine as a comp was sold for like $425 million a few years ago. You can put an asterisk around that sale price. But the values have been coming down and down yep. and down. And a lot of folks thought maybe there'd be almost no buyers for titles yep. like Time, Fortune, Sports Illustrated. So Mark Benioff bought Time. Yeah, at Chat. a very, very good price, $190 million. Chat bought uh, Fortune, Fortune, also at a good price. Sports Illustrated, as we record this, is TBD. TBD, but I, I think it will end up in a good place. And so we'll start easy. Make the pitch for why a billionaire or anyone else would want to buy an asset that at its core is based around a print magazine yeah, in well, 2018. I, because of my position, I've had the opportunity over the course of the last year to talk to you a made bunch this of people before. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and hear them. Yeah. Uh, and you're talking about people with a great deal of money, not particularly interested in maximizing their return on that money. Uh, you know, at, at some point, we're when you specifically reach a, talking about a billionaire, right? In this we're case, talking from, about bil- yeah, private think, buyers, because there were other people who were poking for business reasons, right? Yeah, well, but most of those dropped out pretty quickly Uh because they weren't willing to pay the asking price. Uh, People who were actually in the media business pretty quickly decided that what Meredith was looking for to sell these titles was not something that they were willing to pay. Which should be a big warning flag, right, if you're you're a billionaire. Right. It could be, yeah. Um, But, you know, I think you you had a group of people who— they are billionaires, so they have a lot of money. Uh, they're not that interested in absolutely maximizing their return. If they were, they wouldn't be looking at media properties. Uh, they wanted to do something with their money that they thought was interesting, fun, serves a social purpose, and I think uh, media scratched that itch for them. So and There's a I limited number of ben- these things, right? There's only a handful not, yeah. of storied publications that people know about. Jeff Bezos bought one of them. Particularly right? iconic brands. You know, yeah. I, I I do think, Peter, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in your view on this because you've worked for a great legacy brand, the Wall Street Journal, and you've worked for uh, uh, more uh, startup publications. Yep. It turns out that great brands are not easily built, and they're pretty hard to destroy. <laughs> you know, they stick around for a while. There's, there is some real value in that legacy, and I, I think that's what we're seeing in this uh, wave of interest in titles. There's scarcity, right? There's only a handful of right. brands that people know. People, I used to work at Forbes forever, and people often confuse Forbes and Fortune, but yeah. they still knew what they were. What they were, yeah. Um, Business Week, not so much, which only sold for a dollar. And so when people came to you and said, what do you got, what were they expecting when they when they— 
peeked under the cover and took a look at the financials. Well, I think you have to make, I think you have to separate the titles a little bit. I know I had the conversation with uh, Mark Benioff uh, where he said, look, I'm not looking to make more money in this investment, but I'm not looking to lose money. Uh, So what they're looking for is something they can do that they can feel good about and get excited about that isn't going to be a big drain. Now, that's a hard line to Uh walk sometimes. I mean, if you talk to David Bradley about his 10 years with the Atlantic, at the end of the day, he probably lost more money than he made. Uh, So, you know, that's not an easy bar to get over. But let me distinguish fortune from that because fortune is really in a different place than all the other timing brands or all the other Meredith brands uh, for this reason. Fortune is the one that had actually crossed over where the majority of its revenue comes not from the magazine, but from growth businesses. The majority of Fortune revenue comes from digital and conferences, and the magazine is a minority. So it's, and that's the, that's the other line going up, and it's the print line going down, right? That's We've right. The over. print line is pretty universally going, at least, at least for advertising-supported magazines. I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll get back to the subscription piece in a minute. But for advertising-supported magazines, the print line has been pretty steadily going down for the last decade. And uh, the hope has been that digital would grow to the point where it made up for that and the business would start growing again, but it hasn't happened at most publications. And it hasn't, it's only happened at Fortune because we have a very uh, large and successful uh, live events business. So uh, you mentioned Benioff. Um, He was going to buy Fortune. He was very, very far down the road What, what and ended up buying time. How, how did I, that's a question you'd have to ask him. Yeah, but I'm uh, asking you. Well, I can tell you that from where I sit, uh-huh. a Benioff purchase of fortune is somewhat problematic. Uh, Mark Benioff was at the top of our 100 best companies to work for list. Uh, just happens to be that he runs Salesforce, yeah. runs a very good uh, company and that has a rigorous methodology behind it. But he came out on top. He was on our world's greatest leaders list. We spent a lot of time writing about Salesforce and about Mark Benioff. I think it would be somewhat problematic to do that if the magazine were owned by Mark Benioff. I mean, the South China Morning Post obviously has this problem with Jack Ma. Right. Uh, the Washington Post would have the problem with Amazon, except it doesn't have to write about it. Yeah, and, mo- and most people. When- truthfully have a difficult time writing about their ownership slash bosses, right? It's just reality. So I think that would have been a problem for us at Fortune, and I think it probably would have been a bit of a problem for him. What if we wrote a nasty story about some huge Salesforce client and they went to him and complained? So I think time is a... It scratches his philanthropic itch, but it solves that uh, conflict of interest problem. The most interesting uh, bidder I heard about was Steve Burke, runs NBCU, and uh, Jamie Dimon. Um, I, again, you'd have to talk to them about that, not me. They, they didn't come chat with you? I'm sure they did come and chat with you. Yeah, I'm not going to go into You don't want to talk about it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to talk about anything that happened in public, but not things that happened in private. Maybe we can find a gray area. <laughs> uh, so so the, the process took but, about— But I will yeah, say, and, and this was the point I was making at the outset, I think for all of these titles, it's not just the final buyer. It's most of the bidders fall into this category of high Rich net, people. Who want to do something with their money that they can feel good about and they think is socially useful and kind of fun. And, and media scratches that itch, maybe the way a, a, a sports team I was going to talk did. about that. And yeah. so it used to be that you bought a sports team almost entirely for ego, and and you would argue that you maybe didn't make any money. As it turns out, over time, those things have been phenomenally valuable investments. Um, again, because of scarcity. And I think maybe that's partly the analogy here. Yeah, I think that's partly true. I mean, look, it's not new that people have bought media properties I mean, you, you can talk about Sam Zell in Chicago. You can yeah. talk about Mort Zuckerman with the U.S. News and World Report. It's not new for rich people to buy media properties that were struggling. Uh, but but I do think probably mostly because of Jeff Bezos that there has been a a surge of interest. Turns out he got a great deal, right? He bought he bought the Post at sort of the bottom of the market. And, and, and so people say, if he can do it, maybe we can do it. So how do you end up with, with Chat? How does that process? Am I, am I still butchering his name? Yeah. No, no you're doing fine, okay, Chat. Uh, so it's an interesting story. Uh, this is, uh, when, 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 when the deal was announced, I, I pinged a couple people at Fortune and someone else, but uh, he's a Thai billionaire no one's ever heard of. Yeah. Which I think is still Well, how many Thai billionaires have you heard of? Zero. Okay. Uh, so Chat's family, his uh, great grandfather and his siblings started a company called the CP Group in Thailand, which has since grown into the largest private company 
in Thailand. Uh, it's a massive, and it partners with global partners with Walmart. It runs Seven Elevens all over Thailand. It's a uh, it does a lot of agriculture stuff. It's into telecommunications. It's fair these days. It's fairly diversified. So big, rich company gives members of that family, including Chat, access to capital. Uh, he has an interesting history with Fortune. He's in his mid fifties. Uh, so uh, if you roll back the clock to when the Vietnam War was ending. Mm -hmm. The U.S. was pulling out. We abandoned Vietnam. Uh, uh, Saigon fell pretty quickly thereafter, Laos, Cambodia. I suspect if you were a scion of the uh, biggest capitalist family in Thailand, the world looked kind of scary to you. Uh, So at that time, he was sent, he was in school in Singapore. He was sent by his uh, family to school in um, Arizona, I believe, at a fairly young age, you know, as a teenager. So grew up there and then went to college at USC, studied business at the Marshall School, and at that time was required to read Fortune magazine as part of his curriculum. So at, a, at an early stage in life, he encountered Fortune and, and it, you know, connected with him. When he left the U.S., he then uh, spent a lot of time in China, has become Uh, very interested in, invested in uh, China, and he knows uh, the power of the Fortune brand in China. You may not know this, but we every three years do a a big event called the Fortune Global Forum in China. Makes you guys a lot of money. You do it sort of in conjunction with the the government there. Yeah, it's it's a huge event. It gets a lot of press coverage. Uh, Cities for rising cities in China, it's kind of like the Olympics. You mm-hmm. know, it puts them on the map in business terms. And so they, they, you know, they'll go to great effort to get the Fortune Global Forum to come to their city. The last one was in Guangzhou last year. No, two years ago now. We're in 2019. It was in yeah. 2017. And so Chat was familiar with Fortune's power in China, as well as his historic uh, connection with Fortune when he was in school. And I think when he realized that it was— uh, on the block, he said, I'm interested. I think a lot of folks, or at least me, thought that a buyer for Fortune might likely come from Asia, right? Because that brand maybe even punches above its weight sort of in Asia, outside of the U.S. Um, again, you tell that at Forbes. I, I thought that. Yeah. I, I thought that. I think, But I think that got shut down by the— um, well, a couple of things. I mean, initially, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, came down hard on companies like HNA that were heavily investing outside of China. So there was some pressure from mm-hmm. the government on foreign investment. And then the whole trade war yep. issue made it complicated. So I, I think that kind of, I don't know if it formally closed the door, but I think it kind of informally closed the door on Chinese buyers for fortune. And so chat is a, a different version of that. He's of, of Chinese descent. Right. But he's China adjacent, China adjacent, and ethnically Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the mechanics of that, right? So you, you just deal with Benioff. It doesn't happen. Are you then sort of beating the bushes for another buyer, or does Chat show up because he knows the Benioff? The Benioff. Oh, that's a comp- it's it's complicated. Actually, Chat had a someone who was working with him who tried to find a way to get to me and went through uh, my friend Bob Nardelli, the former uh, uh, CEO of. Chrysler, Home yep. Depot was at GE. Yep. So the initial approach actually came through uh, Nardelli and to me. And at that time, we were in exclusive conversations with a different buyer. So I said, I can't really talk to you about this. But I introduced them to the bankers. And it. And when the exclusivity expired with the earlier buyer, uh, he jumped in. So you're doing all this. You're trying to sell a publication. You're also running a publication. You're got to keep the doors open. You got to keep the trains moving. You're thinking about what you're going to do this year and next year. And then also as your staff, right? So how do you how do you manage that process? It seems like a particularly difficult thing to pull off. Because by the way, it's in nearly public view, right? It's not, some of these transactions, people in, inside might know they're going on, but people on the outside don't know the things you know, for I've sale. I've spent a huge part of the last two years with investment bankers. You know, people like you and me go into journalism, so we don't have to spend huge amounts of time with investment bankers. Yep. Uh, and you've been a business journalist for a very long time. You were the journal for a very long time. It's not like this is a foreign concept to you, but it's different than actually yeah, doing it. Yeah, it. Was, it was quite an education to yeah. be inside those rooms instead of outside those rooms trying to get in. Yep. But it did uh, devour an enormous amount of time. Look, we have a great team at Fortune. Uh, I was the editor-in-chief a couple of years ago. I'm not now. Cliff Leaf is the editor-in-chief, yeah. so I don't have to run the the editorial staff. Um, uh, and so that made it possible uh, for me to 
take this on. And again, this was this is a company that only a few years ago was owned by Time Warner. Then they spin out Time Inc. Then it gets sold to Meredith. Then they spin out the individual titles. So if you've been there for not that many years, you've undergone an enormous amount enormous of change. Enormous change. Enormous change. I mean, you, you have to realize that in the Time Warner days, and that was only four years ago, under Time Warner, uh, Fortune didn't even have a website. And it pretty much wasn't allowed to make video. It didn't have a website because the web content was all given to CNN money. Yep. CNN got to run the website. And, of course, video was all done over in the studios. Yeah, that was all Dan Roth was, was doing that for you guys for a while. He's another, another guest on this show. Now yes. Dan, very yeah, Dan, Dan was there at the time. I wasn't. I came shortly after that. But Time Warner had basically said, you guys are going to do print magazines, period. And we'll take the cash. Thank you very much. And we'll put it to use productively somewhere else. So that was a death sentence. Uh, and getting out of Time Warner was uh, was incredibly important. So that's the the upside is we get to control our own destiny. We actually get to run a website now. Uh, the downside is yeesh, we're, we're on our own as as, <laughs> as the media business is is contracting, especially for again print businesses. Yeah, none of these uh, billionaires has yet magically solved uh, the problems of the uh, print media business, particularly the advertising supported media business. And Time Inc. by definition was predominantly advertising yep. supported. We had a big digital presence. Uh, Time Inc. All In was uh, reaching 130 million people a month digitally, no paywalls, uh, and it was entirely advertising supported. And most of the magazines are pretty heavily dependent on advertising as well. Alan, you've teed me up with the perfect segue because <laughs> we were going to talk about your, your existing business and where it's going to happen now, but we are an ad-based business, so here is where we're going to hear from a fine advertiser. We'll be right back. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Thank you, Recode Media advertiser and audience. I'm back here with Alan Murray, uh, who's still running an ad-based business, right? Yes, we're Majority still. Majority of your revenue comes from advertising. But that's that has been shifting yep. primarily because of the the way the conference business is structured. Uh, you know, more and more of our conference revenue comes directly from the participants and less of it comes from the sponsors, but it's still about half and half. So, and that's the direction you've been in for a while. Uh, I know the conference business pretty well. When you have a new owner, do you have to say, here's what we're doing, what do you want to do? Or you say, here's what we're doing, this is our plan, you're along for the ride, how does that work? Well, he owns it. Yep. Okay, so it's his baby now. Yeah. Uh, so obviously that was my first question is like, well, why did you buy this? What do you want to do with it? What do you, if you want me to run it, how do you want me to run it? And to what end? He's been fairly clear on that point. He thinks Fortune is a great brand. It should have global resonance. Uh, it should be part of whenever uh, somebody's thinking about business or money, Fortune should come to their mind. Uh, so he wants it to be much bigger than it is, much more influential than it is. And when I say, and how do we do that? He said, that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> and what about just sort of overall, do you want us to sell advertising? Do you want us to sell expensive conference tickets? Uh, no, no. You figure it out. You figure it out. Yeah. I guess I would say one thing in that if, if you look at where we were headed prior to the sale, we were probably on a path for the events business to become more than half of the business. I'm not sure that will happen now because he's interested in the events business, but also wants us to grow the media business. So the events business, the way that, that it works 
in, in, in my world and the way you're describing it is, well, there's a couple different ways to do it. You can either have advertisers underwrite the thing and people show up for free or for mostly for free, or you can ask people to pay a lot of money to show up. You guys are, are in that model now. We're, we're, we, we've always, look, we really view our events business as a communities business. It's not about putting great people on stage and then selling tickets to come see yep. them. It's about creating a community of people. You, you're uh, uh, it's been a number of years since I was at the uh, at your conference, but I think yours was a similar mode. The person sitting next to you is uh, going to be as interesting, maybe even more interesting than the person that sitting part up of the on the stage. Yep. So, so that's an important part of, and that's always been the way we've approached our conferences. And we do ask, uh, we do ask people to pay. We ask speakers to pay to uh, attend. The executives who are on the stage are part of the community, so they're paying to be there. And it's a fairly high ticket price. So we we have in the in the event business, we pretty much balanced out consumer revenue and sponsorship revenue. And in the trick, at least in my world, is how do you scale this stuff, right? Because there's a certain number of people who can afford a ticket for this, this sort of thing. There's a certain number of people who are interesting enough to have on stage. Um, there are a bunch of people doing events like this. There's you, there's me, Bloomberg's doing it, other folks go in and out of it. It seems like, and you guys have done now a few franchises, right? You have Most Powerful Women, you do an Asia one. It seems like at some point, though, you're tapped out. There's a limited audience for this. Yeah, I, I think for us, the limitation comes in. We do the Most Powerful Women Conference, which you mentioned. We have a great uh, tech franchise, Brainstorm Tech, which happens at yep. Aspen, competes with what you do, but has a, a, a better setting in my view. Uh, we have, have you been to Phoenix? <laughs> we have, yeah, but I, yeah. Aspen, Aspen is awesome. Um, Touche. We have this uh, a Fortune Global Forum franchise, which is in a different city around the world every year. And then we have uh, some new ones. The one I'm most excited about is a franchise called the CEO Initiative, which is a community of CEOs who really want to devote themselves and and share ideas on how to make business work better for society. Uh, it started with an event we did in Rome at the Vatican in December 2016 uh, that included a meeting with the Pope where 100 CEOs broke off into working groups to talk about what can the private sector do to address some of the world's most pressing problems, whether it's global warming or uh, uh, the billions of people who don't have just basic health care, uh, and did some pretty interesting brainstorming and some interesting projects uh, grew out of that. Uh, Novartis worked with a, a nonprofit called Last Mile Health to attack the problem of uh, people in underserved areas uh, for health So these are interesting themes and ideas. I'm just thinking about the audience for this stuff, right? Because you're sort of selling the idea of access to this club. You're in a club if you can get into this right. thing. By definition, there have to be a limited number of people who can be in the club. Otherwise, right. it's too less big. valuable. So if you want to keep growing it, do you have to figure out ways of, of, of doing stuff that's less exclusive but yes. still has that brand? No, I think you put your finger on it. There is a limitation to how far you can go with these things. In our case, the, the biggest limitation is just the, the number of CEOs or senior executives and the amount of time that they have available on their calendars. Right. You know, we're pushing the we, – we have uh, – I think we did 18 different events last year that, that you know, it, we're, we're running out of uh, – uh, we're running out of CEOs who can do that. What we've heard from the companies that we work closely with is that they would like us to move further down the hierarchy, that – in today's world, business has become so complicated and peripheral vision has become so important. You know, you may have been extremely successful moving up the ladder in the banking industry, but unless you recognize that your competition now isn't going to come from another bank, it's going to come from Ripple or it's going to come from Apple or it's going to yeah. come from uh, uh, Alipay, Amazon, Amazon, whoever. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it requires a greater degree of peripheral vision. It requires you to get out of the company and, and network and meet people in other industries, and that's where we think we can play an important role. So we're looking at ways to uh, that we can serve that need. And the trick, right, is is figuring out how you make that more accessible to more people without diluting the value. It's the TED right. slash TEDx problem. That's right. Is, yeah. Does that does the TEDx model, where they sort of basically literally almost anyone can sort of create their own TED and say they ran a TED conference, does that does that appeal to you? Where you sort of franchise it out? I don't. Th that's sort of a a, a user generated yeah. uh, model. That's not something we spend a lot of time looking at. Uh, it's interesting, uh, but I think we're looking more at how we can uh, actively help companies 
meet this need. And in terms of the the content you're putting out on the website, in the magazine, for a very long time, Fortune was always, in my mind, considered like a writerly magazine. Um, they did really great long-form journalism known for that. We're in a world that, uh, on, the, on the one hand, sort of really still values that or maybe has a renewed value on that. And then there's lots and lots and lots of fast twitch, right. almost designed to be disposable content that you flick on and you flick on your phone and you move on. might still be very valuable, but it's a different thing. So 2019 and beyond, what, what, do, you, what do you think, think you guys are going to make? I think, we'll do bo- I think we'll do both. I think you have to do both. I mean, we're trying to help business people get the information they need to be successful. Sometimes... That's a 5,000-word story by Jeff Colvin on what the hell happened at GE. You know, that was like one of the best-read stories that we did in the last year. Uh, But at other times, it's, uh, you know, a very busy corporate executive wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning, needs a quick download on what they need to know that's important, and so they will go to one of our newsletters or, or, you know, see a news flash coming across their cell phone. And and, and I I, I don't think you can choose – Either or. I think if our mission is to serve our audiences and to keep them informed, we have to do both. There was a period where a bunch of the timing properties, including you guys, were doing a lot more ephemeral stuff. And it was, uh, you know, the Sports Illustrated had its own version of sort of a BuzzFeed thing called know, Hot Potato or something. Um, and Time was doing a lot of aggregation, and, and you guys were doing some of that as well. Will that continue, or is that less appealing in a world where ads are, are less valuable? Well, you're, you're talking broadly about more ephemeral uh-huh. stuff. I guess the way I would, the way I would put it is this. You know, I started in the newspaper business. You were in the newspaper business. Newspapers have always had comics. They've always had yeah. light fare. They've always had a, 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 as well as deeply reported stories. You've had both. Um, yeah, I'm not so much thinking about stuff like like whether it's light or not, just whether it's such and such publication published this. Here is our version of that story. It's very common. It's very common, but I think we're seeing less of it. Now, I think some of the publications that only did that are having a harder time surviving. Well, I, hard right. I don't think you that. can only do that. Yeah. But look, if someone, if I'm a busy executive and I want to count on Fortune to tell me what I need to know, you have to assume that not everything you need to know is going to be captured in an original story by a Fortune reporter. And so for us to point to stories in other places that may be interesting or important, uh, is a valuable service to our readers, and we'll keep doing it. So we less, do it in our newsletters. We do right. it on the site. Uh, and, and and another piece of that, Peter, that you know well is we have a, a large array of services down to some, which are very expensive. You know, if you want to be a member of the CEO initiative, it's going to cost you $15,000 a year. Uh, we see that as a funnel. We'd like people to come to Fortune to get their most basic news about business and money. Um, but over time, some of those people will, we hope, convert into magazine subscribers, newsletter readers, and uh, conf- eventually conference attendees and members of our communities. And this, this is obvious, but we should say it. One of the reasons that a, a title like Fortune is so valuable as it is a business publication. You get a much higher uh, rate generally for advertising there, which is why people are still always trying to sort of get into this business. Uh, Jessica Lesson, another guest, has is, is, yeah. is moved into this. Quartz, um, yeah. Bloomberg is, is seems to constantly, I'm always confused about whether they want to be a terminal business or they want to be a media business. I think they would say both right now. Who's your primary competition for your, your reader's time and for your advertising dollar? Yeah, uh, everyone you mentioned. I mean, there's not a simple answer to that question. I think both our readers and our advertisers are looking at a rapidly evolving media landscape. I think what distinguishes Fortune is, you know, you have a a, a lot of the big publications are principally investor-focused, right? I would say that about the Wall Mm -hmm. Street Journal or Bloomberg or CNBC. Uh, A lot of the big, those big media organizations, their first go-to is the investor, we're really interested in business, uh, in the people who run them, in the leadership qualities necessary to be successful, in how you adapt technology to make your business great. Um, uh, and I think in that space, we shine. So this map you're laying out, is this is the map that you would have had last year, this, this roadmap, uh, is the same one you would have had last year prior to the acquisition. Is anything changing because you, you have new owners? Sure. Uh, the, what, what, the big thing that's changing is last year, if we wanted to invest to grow, 
you basically, I mean, for a while you had to make sure you got a return on that investment in the first year. Then it became the same quarter. <laughs> uh, you know, under pressures from the marketplace, we had we were shaking the quarters out of the billows every uh, uh, every three months. What's changed is we have an owner who's been very explicit in saying to us, "I want you to grow this business, but I'm not interested in taking cash out of it in the in the near term. You can reinvest your earnings. Uh, uh, I will make resources available to you." if you have good ideas for investment. That's, you can't underestimate how profound going from a make the return in the quarter mindset to a, hey, you got seven years to show you can do this. That sounds great. Do you really think you've got seven years? Yeah. Yeah. I think Explicitly. Yeah. And I mean, look, there'll be milestones along the way. We've got to show that we're actually growing it. We've got to show that we're creating value. It's, uh, you mentioned Business Week. I, you hear rumors about how much money they lose yep. every year. We're not going to do that. You can't lose money? No, I didn't say that. I think what we can do is invest. Mm -hmm. That we can spend money if we have a if we think we have good reason to believe that we will make money in return at some point in that seven year window. I'm just trying to think of a seven year itch. I'm just trying to think. If, <laughs> if, if, I mean, I know you're not going to say it on air. Just how real, like what you think the honeymoon period. But that's no. That's like not this. any different from. No, no, no. That's no different from a, any venture investor. Right. Uh, that, in fact, Chat basically, I think, is modeling himself after Silicon Valley venture investors, saying, you know, you, you need to grow the business, you, you, uh, and, and we'll give you the time to get it, and we're obviously going to keep an eye on you and make sure that you hit your benchmarks and all of that. But the goal is to create more value over five to seven years, not over three to six Have months. Have you found yourself trying to explain things like, well, that's not the way the media business works. <laughs> or that We can't do that because generally our journalists are going to balk at that kind of story. Any any of that sort of basic sort of education, or does he come to this uh, pretty fully well, educated? Well, you asked—there are two separate questions there. Uh -huh. First of all, let me be clear. We're sitting here on January 3rd. I met Chat for the first time— six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. So this is a, new, a relationship. new relationship. It's a very new relationship. And what I find so invigorating about it is that it's challenging me to do two things. One is to stretch myself and say, okay, what can I do with this business that I, I knew I had a path to get it from decline to growth, but it was still kind of modest growth. And what he wants is 2X, 3X. So how can I stretch myself to meet his ambition, which no one in the media business has ever put in front of me before. And then the second part is how can I, in the process, also make sure he understands what I've learned over the last 40 years about what does and doesn't work in the media business. I think that's what's going to make my job challenging, but also fun. And have you had to say things like, can't put you or your family or your friends or your investor on the— Haven't had, an, the hadn't, haven't had any inkling of that at all. Uh, just has not come up. Uh, he, no, you know, he is a, um, in many ways. Because by the way, he might say, that's what I want. I'm the boss. I own this thing. No, that's right. And, and when that day comes, if he wants to put himself on the cover, he can and I'll leave. Mm -hmm. That's pretty simple and straightforward. But that's just not who he is or how he's approaching this. I mean, in many ways, uh, uh, Edward Felsenthal, who's now running Time, yep. and I are very close I, I put Edward in the editor's uh, job. We talk all the time. He's incredibly talented, and I'm, I'm really happy about how this has turned out for him. But we, we compare notes. In many ways, his situation with Mark Benioff and mine with uh, Chad are similar in that they are a big, have big ambitions, and they have lots of resources, and they're challenging us to meet their ambitions and are giving us the resources to get there. Uh, one way in which they are different is that, that Benioff is a, a very big public figure and likes that. Yeah. Chad is not. Chad likes to uh, keep quiet. He didn't yeah, do interviews. I don't know, I don't know which one would make sale. me more nervous if I was an employee. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be more nervous working for Mark Benioff or someone that no one really knew very well. But I think that makes clear that this is not something he bought for his personal mm -hmm. aggrandizement. Uh, I, I don't think the day will ever come when he says to me, I want to be on the cover. I'm going to, I'm just pausing so we can all mark that down. And yeah. If he shows up on the cover, we'll, we'll know. Well, you'll know if that day comes because I'll, uh, you'll. Because you'll be hosting your own podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll come asking for a job at uh, We'll put uh, you on the podcast. I, I, I don't see, that's just, I don't think that's the way he's looking at this at all. 
Good. Hey, Alan, I've been talking about your current job and what's going to happen. I want to go back in time a little bit. You spent a bunch of time at the Journal. Yeah. Um, did you overlap almost entirely with the Murdoch era? You yeah. preceded him. I preceded him, and I stayed for uh, four or five years afterwards. Reporter, editor, Washington columnist. When I knew you, you were running digital. Yeah, yeah, which is the main reason I stayed. He, he, uh, he well, it was Marcus Brockley, when Marcus Brockley was uh, briefly working for him, offered mm -hmm. me a job to run digital and conferences and video uh, and books. Basically said, you can have editorial responsibility for everything but the print newspaper. And I thought at the time that was a pretty cool job. And, and the journal was early in sort of figuring out a digital strategy, which was we're going to sell expensive digital subscriptions, and that has worked pretty well for them. Yeah, I, th I think some of it was luck. Uh, uh, Peter Kahn would tell you uh, back in 1996 when he made that decision and was very much going against the grain. At that time, information yep. wanted to be free. You know, everybody's just going to— The Times tried selling opinions access and then stop right and, away. And, and he said from day one, we're not going to give this stuff away. People are going to have to pay for it. And that, of course, turned out to be right. So now that you've been out of there for a couple of years, what is your sense of how the journal has sort of adapted to both Murdoch and, and now the Trump era? I'm trying to figure out how I can answer this without getting into politics. Mm. Uh, Let's go there. Because I'm not a highly political person. I'm very much a centrist. If you saw my voting record over the last 30 years, you would think I was I was. Uh, but you uh, vote indecisive. I do vote, Good. but I probably voted for one party as much as I voted for the other party. Uh, in fact, almost exactly equally for different reasons over the years. So I'm not a highly political person, but I think Rupert Murdoch's the best thing that could have happened to the Wall Street Journal for two reasons. One is because he provided capital. Uh, at a time when virtually all the money that the Wall Street Journal was making was being paid out to the Bancroft family in dividends. And I, I, I mean, I love the Bancroft family. They're good people, but they had a right to want to make a living off of their yep. investment. But the other thing about Rupert that was so much fun for me, I mean, I was working in the non-legacy part of the business, right? I was doing everything but the print newspaper. And you sort of knew with Rupert Murdoch at the top that taking a swing was going to be supported. I'll give you a very specific example. When we created streaming video mm -hmm. over the journal website, uh, this would have been in 2011. Yep. Uh, we were we got up to four or five hours a day of live video. I filled, from I filled a couple desk. of those minutes. You did. Yeah. You, were, you were a big part of that. You were, you were great. And you remember we did it uh, very inexpensively. We were doing it from the news desk of the Very journal. inexpensive. I didn't get uh, paid for it. You didn't get paid a penny uh, for doing it, but we were having a lot of fun and doing really well. Uh, well, the late Roger Ailes started calling Rupert up directly and saying, this guy's trying to take over my business, which was an absurd claim. Roger Ailes was making, what, a billion dollars a year, and we were spending maybe 15 million on this or 10 million on this operation. But he would call Rupert Murdoch and complain that you, Alan and you Murray guys were is in the to... same building on Sixth Avenue. Yes. He's generating a gazillion dollars. Yes. He feels in some way threatened by yes. the tiny Peter Kafka. Yes, someone, uh, someone, once ex someone once explained to me that he, he said, you have to understand, Roger sees SpongeBob SquarePants as competition. You know, he's every, he sees everything as competition. But he really went after me in a pretty vicious uh, way, both directly with Rupert Murdoch and in the trade press. Uh, uh, claim, he's planted a rumor that I was trying to take over uh, Fox Business News, which is entirely untrue. Um, so so, I, so why, I heard the, it, why am I telling you that wait, story? No, 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 no I, this is great because I, I heard a story about this, which is that you and some other folks had to go down to his office on yes, the second and make floor. and try and make nice. And then he hollered at you guys. Yeah, and he continued to be Turns nasty. out he had a gun in there, too, but you didn't know that at thank, the time. Thank God I didn't know it, or I probably wouldn't have gone. But I would periodically get a call from, from Rupert saying, Roger says you're trying to take over his business. What? What? What are we talking about here? Uh, the reason I say all that is because at the end of the day, in spite of that, Rupert had my back. You know, I was breaking tradition, doing something different, and you knew that Rupert Murdoch wanted you to do that. And to be clear, the, Rupert Murdoch cares a lot about news. Oh, and, uh, and journalism. And journalism, and, and it's what sort of trips his trigger, I think. It's great that he's built up Fox and all of that, but, I mean, the the, the ne not not the, the news network. But everything else is sort of ancillary, I think, in, in his head. He loves news. Loves it. And every aspect of it, I mean— I'll tell you another uh, interesting story. The the early days of the um, uh, the iPad, 
the guy who was then running our digital business walked into my office maybe a month or two before the iPad launched. We didn't even know it was an iPad. We just knew Apple was about to launch something. And uh, uh, he said, we're not going to we're not going to do anything for the iPad because we have too many other things we have to do. And they're already working with the New York Times. The New York Times has been there for two months, and and it's just too much trouble. Right. This is the thing where, where a certain number of publications worked with Apple in advance of the two iPad launch. Two or three, launch, very few. And, but went to Cupertino and were sort of they put under a veil. in a room, yeah. no windows, yeah. you know. And, uh, and again, we didn't even know the name of this device yet. Uh, and so then uh, maybe six weeks before the iPad launches— uh, Steve Jobs comes to New York to meet with a group of editors, and Rupert sits in on the meeting. And he sh- passes it around and, sh- and shows it to us. And then Jobs leaves, and Rupert calls us into his office and says, this is going to change the world. I want the Wall Street Journal to be on it. I want the Wall Street Journal to be on it the day it launches, which at that point was only six weeks away. And he said, I want the Wall Street Journal app. It damn well better be better than the New York Times app. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So we put a team of people in a dark room with no windows, and they spent the next, you know, sent in pizza every few hours, and they sat there for six weeks and got the job done. And he would walk in every couple of weeks. In fact— And he also did the Daily, different group. He did—yeah. He he would walk in. It was interesting. He came in several times and said— uh, because the designers were digital designers and said they were designing an app that looked like the website. And he would walk in and look at it and say, no, no. He said, that doesn't look like my newspaper. I want it to look like my newspaper. And he ended up being absolutely right about that. Yeah, periodically, because I reported about a lot of this at the time, and and, um, it is hard to remember now how much energy and enthusiasm there was about legacy publications getting onto the iPad specifically. It was going to cure a lot of ills. People were very excited about it. The iPad, you can debate what, how successful it is. It's still a successful product, but it ended up having that, no impact on, on the media business. A, a, a short-term impact. It was a good business for the Wall Street Journal for several years, but it didn't. Yeah, and you could argue the that, that all the time you and everyone else spent thinking about the iPad would have been better, better off thinking about the phone. That's probably right. Yeah, that's probably true, but you can't always uh, uh, see five, ten years down the road. And so you clenched up when I asked you about the journal and, and, and Murdoch and, 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 and Trump. I think the journal has been— gotten a lot of fair criticism about some of pulled punches. They've also done really, really important reporting I on so Trump. I, look, this is a terrible time for, uh, for journalism because you have the president of the United States calling out credible publications uh, as being false news. And that may help drive subscription revenue in the short term, but in the long term, it's undermining their credibility in horrible, horrible ways. And I think the journal has probably done a better job than anyone else. In fact, their surveys, you know, Peter, that I spent a couple of years of my life running the Pew Research yep. Center in Washington. Pew really does the benchmark survey on media credibility. And what that shows is that the journal has done the best job of maintaining credibility on both sides of the great divide. I think there's going to come a moment in our history when that becomes very, very important. And I'm assuming bring, to bring back to Fortune, you want Fortune to occupy that same sort of That's ideological right. space or non-space. That's right. That doesn't mean we won't, you know, we won't write uh, tough stories about Donald Trump. We have. But I, I, I don't think we can afford to write off 30% of the country or 35% of the country, which I think is what publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post have come very close to doing. What if it turns out that 30% of the country just doesn't want to read news that isn't anything but un- but, but astonishingly flattering to Trump, like uh, uh, Mark Whitaker's uh, embarrassing uh, speech he made on behalf of Trump a couple days ago? Praising. Yeah. yeah, I think there's more going on than that. Yeah. I, I think, uh, and maybe this is driven a little bit by economics, I think some news outlets have are, are uh, reveling in their opposition role. And as a result— Even when they say we're not the opposition, we're just doing our job. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I look, I grew up in Tennessee. We were talking about that earlier. So I know a fair number of people who, while they aren't—while they probably weren't Trump supporters or voters, are so turned off by what they might see on CNN uh, that they it almost drives them to become more sympathetic to Trump because they feel like those people are just— spend all their time attacking him. And again, it may all be, I think Trump has actually worked this pretty cleverly. Uh, You know, he 10 or 15 times a day, he'll throw out a statement that is, that you and I know is absolutely false. And it's like red meat. 
to the the yeah because uh, when the president lies you should you should be upset you should, about it right I, but I think what's happened at an outlet like CNN the the linear part of CNN is that's all they do yeah nothing else in the world happens <laughs> it's just the president lies we report that he lied yeah. it's it's become a game that actually enhances it it increases viewership for CNN it increases core uh, support for the president I don't think it serves society very well yeah it's also a function of 24-hour news right before Trump there was the poop cruise right or the, <laughs> the Malaysian plane and you find a thing and you sink your teeth into it and you go and you go and go and we've had years of Trump that's a different hour of discussion. This has been a great hour. Um, I will be looking for chat on the cover of a Fortune magazine. Um, <laughs> and, and then offering me a job when it happens. Happy to have you come chat whenever you want. I don't know how much we can pay, but we can figure something out. <laughs> Alan, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you guys for listening. Our ask, as always, if you like this, please tell someone else about it. If you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to this podcast for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie and Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. You are all awesome. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on home mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.